Micah chapter 3, I'm hoping you're enjoying this series. I know I am enjoying it and being challenged by it as I prepare each week. Uh, It is wonderful to hear an Old Testament prophet. Uh, The words just ring out so powerfully. You know, the longer I'm a pastor, the more I see the effects of one generation on the next. If you look at three generations of a family, maybe the grandfather has a real alcohol problem. And the home is full of anger and yelling and even violence. And that son grows up in that environment and and he, he absorbs all that anger and rage. And then when he gets married, maybe he says no to the alcohol, but he passes on that anger and that bitterness to his son. And that guy grows up and and. His marriages become dysfunctional. Maybe he goes through several of them. The sins of one generation typically get passed on to the next, but that is not always the case. I'm inspired and encouraged by people who can break the chain. One such person is Oprah Winfrey. And until this week, I did this research on Oprah, I didn't really know her story of growing up, but it is a story in those early years of a lot of pain, a lot of hardship. She was born in 1954 in Kosciuszko, Mississippi. I got to hang out with some people from Mississippi one time, and they, they instructed me, they're like, foreigners say Mississippi. They go, when you're from Mississippi, it's Mississippi. So I learned how to correctly say it. Now, 1954, in a southern state like that, that's the era of segregated schools in the United States. Black kids and white kids had to be going to different schools. It's, it's the era where black people weren't even allowed to drink out of the same water fountain as white people and certainly had to ride at the back of the bus if they even had the money to afford the bus. And Winfrey grow, grew up in that kind of environment. First six years of her life were in real, real abject poverty. Uh, her grandmother, Hattie Mae Lee, looked after her and her mom. Her grandmother was so poor that Winfrey often wore dresses made out of potato sacks. Now, her grandmother was a smart lady, taught her to read before the age of three, and took her to the local Baptist church where she was nicknamed the preacher because she had an incredible ability to recite Bible verses at such a young age. When Winfrey was a child, her grandmother believed strongly, kind of spare the rod, spoil the child. And so she f- believed that uh, the, the switch from the willow tree, go cut a branch and whack that kid. And Oprah recalls beatings were an almost daily occurrence as a 5 and six years old. Partway through grade one in their sixth year of life, Winfrey and her mom moved to an inner city neighborhood in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And the mom, it turns out, was even less supportive and encouraging than the grandma had been, largely as a result of the long hours she worked as a maid. Winfrey had stated that As she grew up, she was eventually molested by her cousin, her uncle, and a family friend. And that began when she was nine years old. Something she first announced in 1986 on an episode of her TV show regarding sexual abuse. 
To compound the pain, when Winfrey discussed that alleged abuse with her family members at age 24, they refused to believe her account. At age 12, she was sent to live with her birth father in Nashville, Tennessee. Winfrey once commented that she had not chosen to be a mother herself in adult life because she had such a poor experience with her mother. At 13, after suffering what she described as abuse, Winfrey ran away from home. When she was 14, she became pregnant, but that little baby was born premature and did not survive. Winfrey later stated that she felt betrayed by the family member who had sold that story of that premature birth to the National Enquirer magazine in 1990. To realize where she has come from, to rise to the point where this entrepreneur and personality has the admiration of millions and a net worth of over $2.9 billion is pretty astounding. Pretty inspiring for someone to break the chains of a terrible upbringing and go on to success. Well, we're currently looking at Micah chapter 3. And today we're going to discover that in the background story, there is a similar kind of tale going on. King Hezekiah's father Ahaz was horrifically bad. Would definitely make the top 10 list of worst fathers of all time. Yet somehow God worked in Hezekiah's life to have him grow up to be one of the best kings that Judah ever had, faithful, devoted to the one true God, and absolutely committed to reforming the nation of Judah, so that it was spared disaster and blessed by God. Now, the preaching of Micah in this chapter, chapter 3, played a key role in really cementing King Hezekiah's heart for God as a young man at the age of 25 when he first was appointed king. First point is entitled, Kings Are People Too. So Micah begins by telling us who this prophet is aimed at. In verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, Then I said, listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, should you not embrace justice? So who are these people? That, who's included in this description? Leaders of Jacob, rulers of Israel. Well, Bible scholar Gary Smith says this, the political and civil, civic leaders responsible to ensure that justice governs all human relationships in the kingdom. These officials include judges who adjudicate civil and criminal trials, one of which is the king, and the elders of tr the tribal clans who serve both as military leaders and local judges to settle minor disputes. Now, I mentioned that Ahaz, Hezekiah's father, was a horrifically bad father and a disaster of a king. Here are just a few verses from 2 Chronicles 28 that tell you everything you need to know about Ahaz. It says, Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, reigned in Jerusalem for 16 years. Unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel and also made idols for worshiping the Baals. He burned sacrifices in the valley of Ben-Hinnom and sacrificed his children 
in the fire, engaging in the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He offered sacrifices and burned incense at the high places, on the hilltops, and under every spreading tree. Ahaz gathered together the furnishings from the temple of God and cut them in pieces. He shut the doors of the Lord's temple, set up altars at every street corner in Jerusalem. In every town in Judah, he built high places to burn sacrifices to other gods and arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of his ancestors. You know, Hezekiah is fortunate to even have survived childhood. His father was putting his brothers and sisters to death, sacrificing them to appease a pagan god like Molech. Scholars have speculated that it was his mother Abijah who was the major healthy spiritual influence in his life. Praise God for godly mums, even if they're married to a schmuck like Ahaz. So the combined leadership of Judah, the young king Hezekiah, these judges in the capital city of Jerusalem, as well as these tribal clan leaders, they have all grown up under these horrific years of Ahaz's reign. God sends the prophet Micah at just the right time to confront, challenge, and get them back on track. Now here's the amazing thing. Apparently, all of this powerful prophesying that God gives Micah to do actually pays off. These powerful words do produce heart change. Listen to what the prophet Jeremiah would remember looking back to this time period. Some of the elders of the land stepped forward and said to the entire assembly of people, Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah. He told all the people of Judah, this is what the Lord Almighty says, Zion will be plowed like a field, Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble, and the temple hill a mound overgrown with thickets. Did Hezekiah king of Judah or anyone else in Judah put him to death? Did not Hezekiah fear the Lord and seek his favor? And did not the Lord relent so that he did not bring the disaster he had pronounced against them? We are about to bring a terrible disaster on ourselves. I've entitled this first point, Kings are People Too. You know, Hezekiah was chosen by God, given a godly mother to influence him, but age 25, he was handed power over the nation. The old saying says, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Think of what he was given, that kingship, at such a young age of 25. So he stands at the precipice of a decision. Will he go back to the evil ways of his father Ahaz? Will he turn it around? Will he he devote his heart fully to what God wants? What will he do? Now we know, of course, the path he chose because of those verses in Jeremiah. But listen to this summary description of Hezekiah's whole life in 2 Chronicles 29. Hezekiah was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 29 years. He had a much longer reign than his father. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. Now, wait a second. What's going on here? We know 
His father was Ahaz. So how can the Bible say David was his father? Well, the Bible is saying that just like Israel's greatest king, David, that Hezekiah's heart was fully devoted to God. It was a heart fully in love with God and willing to do his will. He did this to such an extent that really Hezekiah is much more a son of David than he is of his evil father, Ahaz. Pretty high praise indeed. So now we move into the actual content of Micah's prophecy that stopped these leaders in, this, in their tracks, caused them to reevaluate what we're doing and where we're heading. Now this prophecy is about as harsh as it gets. Are you ready? Micah chapter 3. Should you not embrace justice, you who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin and break their bones in pieces, who chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot. Then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. At that time, he will hide his face from them because of the evil they have done. This is what the Lord says. As for the prophets who lead my people astray, they proclaim peace if they have something to eat, but prepare to wage war against anyone who refuses to feed them. Therefore, night will come over you without visions and darkness without divination. The sun will set for the prophets, and the day will go dark for them. The seers will be ashamed, and the diviners disgraced. They will all cover their faces, because there is no answer from God. Our second point is called tough words, tough love. Remember, God has been extremely patient with the kingdom of Judah for over 500 years. He's given them warnings. He's rescued them over and over and over again, chance after chance. Finally, it's enough. The nation has slid under Ahaz's reign back into idol worship, degraded into violence and injustice. And this is the last chance warning before judgment comes down on them. It begins with a rhetorical question where the answer is already known. Should you not embrace justice, you who hate good and love evil? The obvious answer is yes, of course you should. But to this point, the nation hasn't. Their behavior of their leaders has been horrific. So God has Micah speak in these grotesque and violent images. These are scenes right out of an awful horror movie like Night of the Living Dead. You who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin, break their bones in pieces, who chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot. These images shock us even 2,700 years later. And that was the point. God was trying to shock and confront the leadership of the nation to turn around from the mess that King Ahaz had left. Now, many of, were any of the leaders actually doing those horrific things? Not those physical actions, no. Those are metaphors. 
But think about it this way. Think about if you are a hardworking farmer in Judah. You work all year long. You pull in your harvest. You have the wheat stored on these big carts. You've, you've threshed it. Everything's ready to see your family through the winter, to sell the extra so you can live. And all of a sudden, a thief during the night steals your wheat. Now, it's your expectation that when you take this to a judge, maybe your local tribal elder, or maybe you go all the way to one of the judges in Jerusalem, it's your expectation that when the thief is caught, that he will be punished. You will get your grain back. But what these tribal elders, what these judges were doing is they were taking a little payoff on the side. They were letting the criminal go free and the poor farmer had to go home empty-handed, totally deprived of justice. Can you imagine that farmer coming home to his poor family in the winter and saying, you know what? It's going to be a long, cold, starving winter. We didn't get anything back that the thief stole. I've heard people describe what it's like to be in extreme hunger day after day. It's absolutely horrible. God is angry about it, and He's about to bring judgment. Verse 4, Then they will cry out to the Lord, but He will not answer them. At that time, He will hide His face from them because of the evil they have done. Now, there's a further complicating factor. Micah wasn't the only prophet in the land. Micah and his contemporary Isaiah were true righteous prophets of God who only ever passed on exactly what God told them to prophesy. But apparently there were other prophets in Judah who could be bought and paid off for as little as a free lunch. This is what the Lord says is for the prophets who lead my people astray, they proclaim peace if they have something to eat, but prepare to wage war against anyone who refuses to feed them. And that from cover to cover is the difference between a true prophet of God. They would never betray their sacred calling. They would die rather than proclaim one false word. They would rather perish than ever tell people what they wanted to hear for a price. That commitment and fearlessness in the face of opposition, I think is why these words reach across 2,700 years and impact us in 2021. Just like God promised judgment on those corrupt leaders, so He promises judgment on these prophets for hire who would tell people whatever they wanted to hear. Therefore, night will come over you without visions and darkness, without divination. The sun will set for the prophets and the day will go dark for them. The seers will be ashamed and the diviners disgraced. They will all cover their faces because there is no answer from God. So what's the contemporary significance for our political, legal, and spiritual leaders today? Well, God's standards haven't changed in 2,700 years. God still expects politicians to lead for the good of the nation, not selfish personal gains of power or wealth. God's standards haven't changed and He still expects judges whether at the local level, the B.C. Supreme Court or the Supreme Court of Canada, to still render decisions that aren't corrupted through payoffs or threats. 
God's standards haven't changed at all and that He still expects church leaders, church pastors to courageously speak the untarnished Word of God, not to just choose themes or words that will keep everybody happy and never offend anyone. If people need encouragement, then proclaim the love and grace of Christ. They need challenge and confrontation, then preach from the prophets. Crazy part of preaching, it's I'm speaking to myself as much as I'm speaking to you. Well, this has definitely been challenging. How does it all end, Darren? Is there hope in this pretty dark, gloomy proclamation of judgment? You bet, and I'm excited to show you that in our last point. Picking it up in verse 8, Micah says, But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression, to Israel his sin. Hear this, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, who despise justice and distort all that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness. Her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money. Yet they look for the Lord's support and say, Is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The temple till a, a mound overgrown with thickets. Now, when you heard me re- read verse 12, does it kind of ring a bell? Yeah, that's the verse that Jeremiah would quote generations later. And here's that incredible passage from Jeremiah once again, just to remind us. I love this passage. Some of the elders of the land stepped forward and said to the entire assembly of people, Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah. He told all the people of Judah, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The temple hill, a mound overgrown with thickets. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, or anyone else in Judah put him to death? The answer is no. Did not Hezekiah fear the Lord and seek his favor? Yes, he did in amazing ways. And did not the Lord relent so that he did not bring the disaster he pronounced against them? Yes, he did. The point is, it worked. The straight-up confrontation, these grotesque, shocking images, the call for the king, the judges in Jerusalem, those, those local tribal leaders, The call to turn around, to do a 180-degree change worked. The powerful words of Almighty God, the workings of their Holy Spirit, and to their credit, human hearts that were willing to change. Stop what they were doing and embrace God and live lives of true worship. Now, here's the amazing thing, Ocean View Community Church and everyone listening online. God's Word and God's Spirit still change hearts today. When people encounter the work of God in Christ, in the pages of the Bible, when people experience the working of the Holy Spirit inside of them, bringing conviction of sin, when people hear the words of Jesus saying, come follow me, you know what happens? Lives are transformed. Here's an example. Alice Cooper. He grew up in Arizona with religious parents and grandparents. That's what he looks like as a teenager. 
In his teen years, he was on the track team. He had stopped going to church. He was getting into trouble. He was going after girls. One day, his dad said, I want you to paint the outside of the house. And so he's outside. He's got his radio cranked up. He's painting the outside of the house. And for the first time in his life, he heard the music of the Beatles. (coughs) He thought, you know what? That's what I want to do. I want to be in a rock and roll band. So he eventually got a group of guys together at the high school who could all play. And they continued to practice. And it's a whole long story of them kind of rising up through the ranks. But by the early 70s, they had hit it big. They had worked hard on their songwriting, their practicing, but what made them stand out was their stage show. They were the first ones to kind of bring that horror movie look into a rock concert. In the early 1970s, every Christian parent in North America was horrified at an Alice Cooper album. The makeup, the look of the stage, the evil, all this kind of stuff. Now, in reality, the whole thing was a bit of a tongue-in-cheek act, and they were trying to show kind of the difference between good and evil. And Alice Cooper really wasn't into worshiping Satan or evil, but he was certainly a rock and roll party dude at that point in his life. And this week, I got to listen to part of an interview with Pastor Greg Laurie and Alice Cooper. And he says it was at that critical moment in his life, in Alice Cooper's life, that he had just married this wonderful woman named Cheryl Goddard. But he's a rock star. He's making it big. The alcohol, the partying, and then the cocaine enters the picture. And he was totally out of control. Cheryl told him one day, she said, it's all got to change or our marriage that's only a year and a half old is going to be over. Alice was in a hotel room after a big concert the night before, and when he looked in the mirror, he could see blood coming out of the corners of his eyes. He said in the interview, he said, I don't know to this day whether it was a hallucination or it had just rocked my body, but the experience scared him so bad, he took the rest of the cocaine and he flushed it down the toilet. He called his wife, Cheryl, and he said, I'm done with the drugs. I'm done with the alcohol. And she very wisely said, okay, but you have to prove it to me. First thing they did, they walked into North Phoenix Baptist Church. And the pastor preached a real in-your-face kind of turn-or-burn direct sermon. And it shocked Alice Cooper. He initially came to Christ out of almost that sense of fear. He was like, whoa! It was almost a prophetic Micah moment. He did a 180-degree turnaround. Then they went to a different church, and he really began to understand the love, the grace, the forgiveness of Jesus. And he knew he wanted to get baptized. And so the pastor sat him down. They got him ready. He was baptized. Everyone's clapping and cheering. Can't believe Alice Cooper has come to Jesus. And he said to the pastor after, he says, Well, I guess I need to stop being Alice Cooper then. And the pastor, in a beautiful moment of God-given wisdom, said these words. He said, really? Why? He said, God has placed you dead center in the enemy's camp. Why not turn it around and use that position in pop culture for good and for the glory of Jesus? And that's what Alice Cooper has gone on to do over the years.
He has shared his testimony with countless people, including tons of big-name rock stars. He has helped so many alcoholics and drug addicts become sober. You know what, folks? God changed King Hezekiah, the judges of Jerusalem, those tribal leaders, and God changed shock rocker Alice Cooper, and God can change anyone else who comes to him in faith and repentance. Nobody's too far away. Nobody is ever too lost to come running back home like a prodigal son or a prodigal daughter. The supreme sacrifice of Jesus on that Roman cross 2,000 years ago, when Jesus conquered sin, death, and evil, and three days later rose from the grave, you know what? What Jesus accomplished is so powerful. It can bring anybody back home. So, is that you listening today? Are you at the end of your rope? Life's a mess, you feel guilt, you feel shame, and you just think, it's too much. I've gone too far. There's no hope for me. I want to declare in the strongest way I can this morning, that is not true. The leaders of the kingdom of Judah miraculously turned around. The nation was saved. Alice Cooper turned around. His marriage was saved. And he has gone on to impact thousands of people. It's not too late. But you do have to come to Christ with open hands and say, Lord, my life's a mess. Take it away. Take my life and give me back a life that is beautiful so I can help other people. Maybe that's not your story this morning. Maybe you've been faithfully following Jesus for many years. But if you are dead, totally honest in the quietness of your heart, there is one little part of your life that you've kept from Christ. One area of life you've never given Jesus the lordship over. You will let him give you marching orders for the whole rest of your life, just not that one thing. Maybe Micah is saying to you today, Come in repentance and faith, hand it over, kneel before the feet of Jesus, and give him that one area you've been hanging on to. Take it away, Lord. Make me more of a person than I've ever been. Sometimes in life, we just need a mighty prophet of God, like Micah, to stand up and shock us with the truth. If we listen, not only will we be saved, but so will the people we encounter for the rest of our lives. Amen?